Chapter number three of Baseball, How to Become a Player. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Baseball, How to Become a Player by John Montgomery Ward. Chapter three, The Pitcher. Of all the players on the Baseball Nine, the pitcher is the one to whom attaches the greatest importance. He is the attacking force of the nine, the positive pole of the battery, the central figure around which the others are grouped. From the formation of the first written code of rules in 1845 down to the present time, this preeminence has been maintained, and though the amendments of succeeding years have caused it to vary from time to time, its relative importance is more marked today than at any preceding period. In a normal development of the game, the improvement in batting would unquestionably have outstripped the pitching, and finally overcome this superiority. But the removal of certain restrictions upon the pitcher's motions, the legalization of the underhand throw instead of the old straight arm pitch, the introduction of curve pitching, and finally the unrestricted overhand delivery, have kept the pitching always in the lead. At several different times, notably in the rules of 1887, an effort was made to secure a more even adjustment, but recent changes have undone the work, and the season of 1888 will see the inequality greater, if anything, than ever. The qualities of mind and body necessary to constitute a good modern pitcher are rarely combined in a single individual. First-class pitchers are almost as rare as prima donnas, and out of many thousand professional and amateur ball players of the country, not more than a dozen in all are capable of doing the position entire justice. Speaking first of the physical requirements, I will not discuss the question of size. There are good pitchers of all sizes, from Madden and Kilroy to Whitney and McCormick, though naturally a man of average proportions would have some advantages. The first thing necessary before one can become a star pitcher is the ability to throw a ball with speed. The rules, which at present govern the pitching, place a premium on brute strength, and unless one has a fair share of this, he will never become a leading pitcher. There are a few so-called good professional players whose sole conception of the position is to drive the ball through with all possible speed, while others whose skill and strategy have proven by long service are forced out of the position because they have not sufficient speed for the modern game. Next one must be possessed of more than an ordinary amount of endurance. It is by no means a simple task to pitch an entire game through and still be effective in the ninth as in the first, and when, as sometimes happens, the contest is prolonged by an extra number of innings, the test is severe. This being true of a single game, how much more tiresome it becomes when continued regularly for an entire season. During the chilly days of the spring and fall, and under a broiling July sun, can only be appreciated by one who has gone through it. And what with all day and all night rides from the city to city, broken rest and hasty meals, bad cooking, changes of water and climate, the man is extremely fortunate who finds himself in condition to play every day when wanted. Only a good constitution, a vigorous digestion, the most careful habits and lots of grit will ever do it. Besides force and stamina, there are certain mental characteristics necessary. A pitcher must be possessed of courage and of self-control. He must face the strongest batter with the same confidence that he would feel against the weakest, for it is only so that he can do himself entire justice, and he must be able to pitch in the most critical situations with the same coolness as at any other stage. 
He must control his own feelings, so as not to be disconcerted by anything that may happen, whether through his own fault, that of a fellow player, or through no fault at all. He should remember that all are working for a common end, and that the chances of victory will only be injured if he allows his attention to be diverted by unavoidable accidents. And then, too, it is more manly to play one's own game as best one can, no matter what occurs, than to continually display an ugly temper at the little mishaps sure to occur in every game. The next point is to acquire a correct position in the box, and an easy yet deceptive style of delivery. The position is to a great extent prescribed by the rules, and so much of it as is not can be learned by observing the different pitches. The position which seems most natural should be chosen. The ball should be held in exactly the same way, no matter what kind of curve is to be pitched. Being obliged by rule to keep the ball before the body in sight of the umpire, any difference in the manlier holding it will be quickly noticed by a clever batter, and if for a particular curve it is always held in a certain way, he will be forewarned of the kind of ball to expect. Some batters pay no attention to these little indications, but the majority are looking for them all the time, and once they detect any peculiarities, they will be able to face the pitcher with much greater confidence. The correct manner of holding the ball for every delivery is between the thumb, first and middle fingers, as shown in the accompanying cut of Clarkson. It is true that some curves which may be better acquired by holding the ball differently in the hand, but this fact is outweighed by the other considerations of which I have just spoken. Pitcher Shaw might still be a wizard had he not neglected this precaution. By noticing his manner of holding the ball, the batter always knew just what was coming, and there are other pictures yet in the field who would find their effectiveness greatly increased by a closer observance of this point. As for the style of delivery, it should be remembered that the easiest movement is the best. A free, long sweep of the arm, aided by a swing of the body, will give more speed, be more deceiving to the batter, and allow of more work than any possible snap or jerky motion. Facing the striker before pitching, the arm should be swung well back, and the body around so as to almost face second base in the act of delivery. This has the intimidating effect on weak-nerved batters. Besides, not knowing from what point the ball will start, it seems somehow to get mixed up with the pitcher's arm and body so that it is not possible to get a fair view of it. It will be understood what motion is meant if there is an opportunity to observe Whitney, Clarkson or Keefe at work. Next comes the knowledge of how to throw the different curves. I have yet to see an article written on this subject which is of the least value in instructing a complete novice. In the chapter on Curve Pitching, will be found the theory of the curve. But as for describing intelligibly the snap of the wrist and arm by which the various twists are imparted to the ball, I am convinced it cannot be done, and will waste no effort in the attempt. To curve a ball is not a difficult feat, and a few practical lessons which any schoolboy can give will teach the movement. But, while not attempting myself to tell how this is done, to one already possessed of the knowledge, I may offer some valuable suggestions. Not only must the ball always be in the same way before pitching, but in the act of delivery the swing of the arm must be identical, or nearly so, that the eye of the batter can detect no difference. All this means that the pitcher must not give the striker the slightest inkling of the kind of ball to expect, so that he will have the shortest possible time in which to prepare to hit. I advise against the use of too many different curves. The accomplished twirler can pitch any kind of curve, but there are some which he seldom employs. It is impossible to be accurate when too many deliveries are attempted, and accuracy is of far greater importance than eccentric curves. 
Almost all professional pitchers now use the overhand delivery and pitch only a fast, straight ball and a curve. The fastball, on account of it being thrown overhand and the twist thereby given, jumps in the air. That is, it rises slightly while the curve, pitched with the same motion, goes outward and downward. The curve will necessarily be slower than the straight ball, and this will give all the variation in speed needed to unsettle the batter's eye and confuse him in timing the ball. Some pitchers are able, keeping the same motions, to vary the speed even of the curve and the straight balls, but, as said before, this is apt to be at the expense of accuracy and should not be attempted by the young player. Occasionally, say, once an inning, a pitcher may make a round arm or underhand motion simply to mislead the batsman, and if the game is safely won, he may use an underhand delivery if he finds it rests his arm, but these are exceptional instances. I have spoken of the importance of accuracy, but it cannot be too strongly emphasised. The more marked the control of the ball, the greater will be the success, for no matter how many wonderful curves he may be able to get, unless he has perfect command, he will never be a winning pitcher. Seasoned batsmen will only laugh at his curves and go on to first on balls. To acquire thorough control requires long and patient practice. A pitcher should always pitch something laid down to represent a plate, and if possible get a batter to stand and hit against him. Let him practice with some method, pitching nothing but a straight ball and trying to put it directly over the plate every time. He should not be annoyed if the batter hits him, as he is only practising. When a pitcher is able to cut the centre of the plate eight times out of ten, he may begin with his curve and work it in the same way. Finally, when he can control the curve, he should try to alternate it with the straight ball. He will find that he cannot do this at first, and retain command of each, but he should keep at it, an hour or more regularly every day, till he can. Up to this point he has been learning only the mechanical part of pitching and if he has learned it well, he is now ready to try his skill in metal on the field of actual contest. And here comes in an element not before mentioned, which is called strategy, or headwork. It means the attempt to deceive the batter, to outwit him so that he cannot hit safely. This may be accomplished in many ways, though the particular ways best suited to each case can only be determined at the time by the pitcher himself. It depends, therefore, upon his own cleverness and wits, and it is not possible for anyone else to supply these for him. An intelligent catcher may help him greatly, but there will still remain many points which he himself must decide. I may be able, however, to furnish some hints which will indicate the process of reasoning by which the pitcher may arrive at certain conclusions. I can point some of these out, he should notice, and describe what these generally mean. Signalling But first, as to the question of signs... Every battery, by which is meant a pitcher and a catcher, must have a perfectly understood private code of signals, so that they may know, make known their intentions and wishes to one another without at the same time apprising the opposing players. The first and of course most important of these is the signal by which the catcher is to know what kind of ball to expect. There is no necessity of more than one sign for this, because all that any experienced catcher asks is to know when to expect a fast, straight ball. Not having received the signal for this, he will understand that a curve is to be pitched, and the difference in curve or speed will not bother him after a few moments' practice. Until within a few years, this sign was often given by the pitcher, but now it is almost a universal practice for the catcher to give it to the pitcher. If the latter doesn't want to pitch the ball asked for, he changes the sign by a shake of his head. I think the old method was better, because it is certainly the business of the pitcher not only to do the pitching, but to use his own judgment in deceiving the batsman. He should not act as a mere automaton to throw the ball. 
Moreover, the catcher has enough of his own to attend to without assuming any of the duties of the pitcher. Of course, if the pitcher is young and inexperienced, while the catcher is seasoned and better acquainted with the weak points of batters, the latter will be the better one to signal. It may be thought that the right of the pitcher to reverse the sign by the shake of the head practically gives him the same control as though he himself gave the signs. But this is not strictly true. It is impossible for the pitcher not to be more or less influenced by the catcher's sign, and he will often pitch against his own judgment. At least I have found this to be true in my own experience, and therefore always preferred myself to do the signing. If the pitcher gives this sign, he must be careful to choose one that will not be discovered by the other side, for there are certain players always watching for some points. Some years ago, the Chicago club gave me the roughest kind of handling in several games, and Kelly told me this winter that they knew every ball I intended to pitch, and he even still remembered the sign and told me what it was. Chicago finished first that year, and we were a close second. That point which they gained upon me may have cost Providence the championship, for they beat us badly in the individual series. When I suspected a club of knowing my sign, I used a combination, that is, I gave two signs, either one of them given separately, was not to be understood as a signal at all, but both had to be given together. I found this to work admirably, and it was never discovered by any club so far as I know. If it be agreed that the catcher is to give this sign, it's still not necessary that the pitcher be entirely influenced by him. The pitcher should rely upon his own discretion and not hesitate to change the sign whenever his judgment differs from that of the catcher. There are certain signs which the catcher gives to basemen when there are runners on the bases, and with these two the pitcher must be perfectly familiar, so that he may be able to pitch the ball in accordance with what is about to be done. For instance, if the catcher has signalled to the first baseman that he will throw there, he will probably ask the pitcher for an out curve. In order then to help him out with the play and give him plenty of room, the pitcher will not only pitch the out curve asked, but he will keep it well out and wide of the plate so that it cannot possibly be hit and he will pitch at a height where it will be best handled by the catcher. So too, if there is a runner on first who is likely to attempt to steal second, he will pitch for the catcher, and he will shorten his pitching motion so as to give the catcher as much time as possible to throw. When runners steal on a catcher, it is often not so much his fault as the pitcher's. It is almost impossible to make a clean steal of second, even with a very ordinary thrower behind the bat, if the pitcher will not give the runner too much start. The pitcher should also receive a signal from the catcher notifying him when to throw to second base, to catch a runner leading off too far. This point will, however, be noticed more appropriately under the duties of the catcher. As for the other bases, first and third, the pitcher should look after them himself without any signal from the catcher. I could always stand in the pitcher's position on facing the batter and see out of the corner of my eye how much ground the runner on first base was taking. As the baseman is already on the base, there is no necessity of notifying him of an intention to throw. So, watching the opportunity, I would throw across my body without first having changed the position of my feet or body at all. The throw is, of course, not as swift as by first wheeling toward the base and then throwing, but it will catch a runner oftener. Smiling Mickey Welsh plays the point to perfection, and last season caught many men napping in this way. Its advantage is that it is entirely legitimate. Some pitchers, in order to catch a runner at first, Make a slight movement forward, visible to the runner, but not to the umpire, as if about to pitch. This, of course, starts the runner before he can recover. The pitcher has turned and thrown to first. Notwithstanding the strictest prohibition last season of any motion even calculated to deceive the runner, there were umpires weak-kneed enough to call these bulks.
The easiest men to catch are the base runners, because they are always anxious to get away, and they will take the most chances. An ambitious runner will keep moving up and down the line trying to get his start. The pitcher should not appear to notice him, pretending to be interested only in the batter. Watch his runner closely all the time. Pitcher should not appear to notice him, pretending to be interested only in the batter, but watching the runner closely all the time. Suddenly and without the least warning, he should snap the ball to the baseman. If the pitcher will choose a time when the runner is on the move away from the base, the batter will be off his balance and may be caught before he can recover. For the third base, it may be advisable to have a signal with the baseman to notify him of a throw. It is very seldom possible to catch a runner off third by a throw from the pitcher, though it may sometimes be done. Clarkson and Galvin both accomplish it at times, though they always do it by the aid of a bulk. Clarkson's method is this. With a runner on first and one on third, the man on first will usually try to steal second, and if the ball is thrown there to catch him, the runner on third tries to score. In this situation, Clarkson makes the slight forward movement of the body as though about to pitch, and the runner on third, being anxious to get all possible ground, moves forward. With the same motion, and before the runner can recover, Clarkson, by a prior understanding of the third baseman, throws to the base. The baseman meets the ball there, and before the runner has quite realised what has happened, he is out. I have reason to know the working of this little scheme, because I was caught by it in Chicago last season in a very close game. The bulk was palpable, and I made a strenuous kick, but the umpire refused to see it that way. A pitcher should not be misled by what I have said into too much throwing to bases. He should throw only when there is a fair chance of making the put-out. For all other purposes, as to hold the runner close to the base, a fate will answer just as well, and does not entail the possibility of an error. Strategy A strategic pitcher is one who depends for success not simply on speed and curves, but who outwits the batsman by skill who deceives his eye and plays upon his weaknesses. What will be the best method for a particular case must be decided in each instance by the pitcher himself, and his success will depend upon his judgment and cleverness. But while no general rule can be laid down, I may still be able to offer some useful suggestions. Assuming that the pitcher has never seen the batters whom he is about to face, there are certain points to be noted as each of them takes his place at the bat. First, his position and manner of holding the bat should be observed. If he carries it over his shoulder in an almost perpendicular fashion, the chances are that he is a naturally high ball hitter, and that he is looking for that kind of pitch, because that is the position of the bat from which a high ball is most easily hit. If, on the contrary, he carries his bat in a more nearly horizontal position, he is ready to either chop over at a high ball or cut under a low one, the chances being that he prefers the latter. Of still more importance is his movement in hitting, and this the pitcher must try to discover before the batter has hit the ball at all. An outcurve should be pitched just out of his reach, being so near where he wants it, it will draw him out and he will make every movement except the swing of the bat, as in hitting. This movement should be carefully noted. If, in stepping forward to hit, he also steps away from the plate towards third base, it is at once a point in the pitcher's favour. The batsman is timid and afraid of being hit. If, however, he steps confidently forward, almost directly towards the pitcher, he is a dangerous man and all the pitcher's skill will be needed to outwit him. Again, if in stepping forward he makes a very long stride, it is another point for the pitcher, because it shows that he is not only anxious to hit, but means to hit hard, and such a man is easily deceived. But if he makes a short stride, keeping easily his balance and standing well upright, he is more likely a good hitter, 
even though he steps away from the plate and if in addition to stepping short he also steps towards the pitcher, the pitcher should look out for him. Without going into too much detail, I will try to illustrate. If my batter is one who steps away from the plate, I will pitch a fast straight ball in over his shoulder too high and too far to be hit. The next time he will step further away, but this time I should put a fast straight one over the outside corner of the plate. From his position he will probably not be able to reach it at all, or if he does, he will hit with no force. I may pitch the next ball in the same place, and then I should consider it time to drive away from the plate again, and I would send the next one in over his shoulder as before. He may hit at one of these high in balls, but if he does he will probably not touch it. At any rate, another fast, straight one over the outside corner ought to dispose of him. It will be observed I have not thrown a single curve, nor would I to such a batter except occasionally say two or three during the game, and then only to keep him guessing. Taking another kind of hitter, suppose he steps up in the best form, making a short stride towards the pitcher, keeping his balance well and his form erect. As already said, he is a dangerous batter, and likely to hit in spite of my best efforts, but I must do the best I can with him. I therefore observe his manner of holding the bat, Note whether he prefers a high or a low ball, and we will say that he's just a low one. I will send a couple of low drop curves just out of his reach. It's just what he wants, if only he could get to them. And at the same time he steps well in towards the plate. This time, however, I send a fast straight high ball over the plate, and if he hits at it at all, it will be in the air. Another fast straight high one might not escape so easily, but I have two balls called, and I can't take the chance of giving him his base. I therefore try it again. If he has missed that I now have two strikes and only two balls, and can afford to th throw away a ball or two, which I do as before by pitching a couple of low drop curves out of his reach, until his mind is again fixed upon that point, then I will probably again try a fast high ball on the inside corner of the plate. These two cases are merely given to illustrate the line of reasoning, and in practice each would be governed by its own particular circumstances. To avoid confusing details, I will add only a few observations. A batter who steps away from the plate should be worked on the outside corner, one who steps in on the inside corner. One who makes a long, vicious swing at the ball will easily be deceived by a slow ball, much more regularly than one who snaps or hits with a short, quick stroke. One who strides long must necessarily stoop or crouch, as in bad form to hit a high ball. If he swings his bat always in a horizontal plane, he will not be able to hit a shoulder or knee ball as well as one who swings in a perpendicular plane, i.e. cuts under a low ball and chops at overhand at a high ball, there are some batters who prefer to hit only at a fast straight ball, while others wait for the curve. And in such a case, the pitcher may get a strike or two by pitching what he will not care to hit at. Some are never ready to hit at the first ball pitched, so that by sending this in over the plate, a strike may be secured. Some are known as great waiters, who will only hit when forced, and these should be forced to hit at once, Others are anxious and cannot wait, and may be safely worked wide of the plate. Then occasionally there will be a founder batter who betrays by his manner when he has made up his mind to hit, and in that case he will let go at anything within reach. Therefore a ball should be pitched where he will be least likely to hit it. If the pitcher finds a batter facing for a hit to right field, he should not give him the ball out from him, but crowd him with it, keep it on the inside corner, and it will be almost impossible for him to succeed. It does not do to work the same batter always in the same way, or he will discover a pitcher's method. Sometimes the pitcher must cross him, and at times it is even advisable to give him a ball just where he would likely to have it, but where, for that very reason, he least expects it. 
Finally, a pitcher should not be in a hurry to deliver the ball. As soon as the catcher returns the ball, the pitcher should assume a position as though about to pitch and stand there. He should take all the time the umpire will give him. This will allow him to give and receive any necessary signals from the catcher. It will rest him and thus enable him to hold his speed. And finally, it will work upon the nerves and eyesight of the batter. The batter will grow impatient and anxious, and unless his eyes are very strong, the long strain in the bright light will blear his sight. Fielding the position Some pitchers seem to harbour the impression that nothing else is expected of them but to pitch the ball, and the effect of this opinion is to diminish their worth to a very great extent. A pitcher is just as much a fielder as any of the other players, and may render his side efficient service by his ability to properly care for this part of his work. I have already spoken of throwing to bases to catch runners, and it is unnecessary to say anything further except to gain caution against too much of it. A pitcher should throw only when there is a chance of making the put-out. In fielding ground hits, he must exert considerable activity on account of the very short time allowed him. He should have the courage to face a hard hit because on account of the position of the second baseman and shortstop, such a hit will generally be safe if he does not stop it or at least turn its course. It is his place to get all bunted hits. It is a mistake to break up the infield by bringing a third baseman in close to get hits, which a live pitcher should be able to field. When a batter who is likely to bunt the ball comes to the bat, the pitcher must be ready at every ball pitch to move in the direction of the third base line, where such hits are always made. There are some pitchers, such as Galvin and Van Haltren, against whom it is not safe to try a bunt, but, as I have said, many others seem to think they are only expected to pitch. On a hit to the first baseman, the pitcher should cover the base, and if the hit is slow or if the baseman fumbles, he may still have time to toss the ball to the pitcher. The pitcher should not wait until he sees the fumble before starting, but the instant the hit is made go for the base. He will then be there and ready to receive the ball, and not be forced to take it on the run. So too, the occasion may arise when he should cover second or third, where some combination of the player has taken the baseman away and left the base uncovered. In all cases where a runner is caught between bases, the pitcher must take part in the play. If the runner is between first and second, the pitcher may back up the first baseman, leaving the shortstop to back the second baseman. If between second and third, he will back up the third baseman, and if between third and home, he will back up the catcher. The pitcher must back up the catcher, the first and third baseman, on all throws from the outfield. He must not wait until the throw is made before getting in line, but the moment the probability of such a throw arises, he should get there, and then he can see the entire play and be sure to get in a line with the throw. In backing up, he must not get too close to the fielder he is backing. What is a wild throw to him will be likewise to the pitcher. He should keep from 50 to 75 feet away. With runners on bases, he should be sure he understands the situation perfectly before pitching, and he must keep it in mind then, if the ball is hit to him, he need lose no time in deciding upon the proper place to throw it. If his play is to try for a double by way of second base, he should not wait until the baseman gets there and then drive the ball at him with all his might, but he should toss it to the baseman as he runs for the base, timing the speed of the throw so that the baseman and the ball will reach the base together. Thus no time will be lost, and the throw being easy may be much more quickly and safely handled. In short, a pitcher should make himself useful wherever he can, and use his wits in fielding as well as in pitching. He should not be disheartened by poor support or unavoidable accidents, but should keep up his courage, and the entire team will be infused with his spirit. There are some pitchers who are not hit hard and yet seldom win, because they display such a lazy disposition in the box, 
that they put all the other players to sleep. And again, there are others not so successful in the matter of base hits who yet win more games on account of the aggressive spirit they impart to their fellow players. Let the pitcher be alive, then, and if he has any heart, let him show it. Let him keep up his spirits, have a reason for every ball pitched, and use his brain as well as his muscle, for it is only in this way that he can ever take a place in the front rank. End of chapter 3